the Spiritual Brew Pub Podcast will help you navigate spiritually after or during a belief shift, deconstruction, or crisis of faith. Not to try to convert you to a particular destination, but give you the resources you need to evaluate your future belief or unbelief and help you follow the religious historical evidence wherever it leads. I'm your host, Michael Camp, a recovering conservative evangelical, the operative word being recovering, sharing my journey in helping others rebuild faith or a reasoned philosophy of life. So grab your brew of choice and learn how fact-based history helps us both critique and rethink faith. Why do we call it a brew pub? Because we like to hang out in them, at least metaphorically. A pub is a great place to let your hair down, share your true thoughts about your journey, and discuss things with an open mind in a non-judgmental environment. Welcome everyone to the Spiritual Brew Pub, the safe haven for ex-evangelicals and anyone restless about their conservative Christian faith or conservative Christianity in general. I'm your host, Michael Camp. It's January 16th, 2021, and what a wild couple weeks it has been in our country. We don't usually delve into politics here, but I just have to give some backdrop on what's been happening. The Democrats won both runoff elections in Georgia to take back control of Congress in the next administration. Donald Trump pressured and politically threatened the Georgia Republican Secretary of State to change the national election outcome in Georgia. And after a Trump rally in Washington on January 6th, a mob of extremist Trump supporters stormed the Capitol to quote, stop the steal, which resulted in vandalism, violence, and death. And oh, by the way, the president was impeached. I almost forgot. So today we wanna take a break from um, dissecting those events and talk about some fascinating topics, uh, including colonial history of America, Christian satire and other forms of satire, and some virtues that we sorely need today. And to lead us in this discussion, it's my, uh, I have a very special guest, Becky Garrison. Becky is an author of books on religious deconstruction. She's a former writer for the Christian satire magazine, The Wittenberg Door, an investigative journalist, and an all-around feather ruffler. Becky, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. Much appreciated. I understand you're living in Portland, Oregon. I'm also in the Pacific Northwest. How long have you been living there? I moved here from the East Coast, New York and Boston in particular, in 2014. Oh, okay. I'm also from Boston originally as well, so that's very interesting. Becky, um, I'm really excited to finally meet you and talk today. You were one of the many voices who helped me deconstruct out of evangelical Christianity. And uh, I, I, at one point, finally started taking the Wittenberg door seriously, if you will, 20 plus years ago. Um, I became a big fan of, the, of its founder, Mike Iaconelli, and I read your book, Red and Blue God from 2006. And today, um, we want to talk about a lot about that, but also to get into your new book, which particularly interested me. It's called Roger Williams' Little Book of Virtues. 
Now, in another life, I attended Roger Williams College in Rhode Island for two years in the 70s. And back then, we were pretty ignorant. We didn't know how cool Roger Williams was. In <laughs> um, later years, I rediscovered him in my own research. And I even cite him in, in my books as the father of separation of church and state and just and fair treatment of indigenous peoples. So um, my mind peaked when I saw the title of your new book. And we'll, we wanna get into that soon, Becky, but let's start by hearing a brief history of your story. Where did you come from in your journey? And tell us a little bit about your work with the Wittenberg Door. Well, I describe myself as a prenatal Episcopalian. And I say that because my late father was an Episcopal priest. If you do the ecclesiology and the biology, it sort of kind of makes sense. I grew up mostly down south, I would say North Carolina more than other places and moved to New York City. That's where I had a, what I would describe as a conversion experience is what I thought it was. Since then, I've come to learn that after my parents died of alcoholism from their addictions and I was in my teens, I did go through a very rough period. And I found when I moved to New York City, a church community that really loved me and cared for me. And that, that was an Episcopal church that was part of the evangelical awakening period of the Episcopal church that was going on during the 80s. And I noticed what, what I thought at that time was a calling to rediscover my faith. And that led me to go to Yale Divinity School where I thought I wanted to follow my father's mission as a champion of you know, civil rights, a cutting edge Episcopal priest. I soon discovered there, I'm a more better off as a prophet than a pastor. I'm not the right temperament to be pastoring people, especially in all the difficulties that the church institution would probably have killed me. And I discovered two years out of graduation when my first article was accepted for the door, there's my passion. I, could, I found an outlet where I could take all the anger I had towards the church, my father, a lot of issues. I mean, your, your dad's an Episcopal priest and he dies of alcoholism. That's going to do a number on you, especially when he takes your mom along with you. Wow. And, just, and so satire for me became, you know, I jokingly said, you pick satire or cyanide. And I picked satire. And, <laughs> I see. You know, you know, it was it was the vehicle through which I could channel a lot of my anger and it, a lot of my rage. Right. It was your therapy, yeah. But and I was very gifted there that I had an editor named Robert Darden who was very good, and he was the one who started teaching me a lot of the rules of satire. I began to catch up on Lenny Bruce, Bill Hicks, rediscover George Carlin. Monty Python had been a very saving force in my childhood. And I would laugh as my family kind of went downhill. My dad taught me the lyrics of Tom Lear. He would explain to me the jokes of laughing. So I came with this background of a parents that were very idealistic, very politically astute, very much wanting to make social change, but also undergirded by their demons, which ultimately did the men. But thanks to Robert Darden, I learned how to take the anger and appropriately put it in my satire and not in my life. I mean, I've done other spiritual direction work. Most recently, I just did some EMDR and I even experimented now that it's legal in Oregon with some psilocybin mushrooms as far as forming, getting my body, my mind into sync. But a lot of this 
really got started when I was working with the door and learning to take all the internal anger in my life and direct it into my work. And for that, satire has proven to be the perfect outlet. Oh yeah, I, I can see that. I mean, I, I can. I, in, when I look back at my journey, there were just some times when you're pulling your hair out and picking up a copy of the of the door or um, other some other uh, satire or something on on Christianity was kind of like a, a bomb to to kind of help you. I mean, I actually met a, uh, a, a Calvinist pastor recently who <laughs> likes Stephen Colbert and it's like oh yeah it's my therapy you know so it's like I mean it just it kind of helps you uh, get through some really tough things in your life and and things that you're going through so I'm cu also curious about your 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 evolution as a, as a Christian and you know what your story is um, I think you, you 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 call yourself a spiritual seeker uh, now and and if that's true, uh, how did you evolve from Christian to spiritual seeker, or where are you now? I describe myself a spiritual seeker in the, the fact that I'm in alignment with my former ancestor Roger Williams, who also left the Baptist Church he founded to become a spiritual seeker in search of what he found was the truth, because he felt that no one religion could have the truth. In my case life as a Christian professional author did not cut it um, for me. When I first began writing for The Door, you could be a progressive voice and remain in the institutional church. What I noticed was when God's Politics blog became a best-selling book, all of a sudden there was this interest in progressive Christianity from a marketing standpoint. So I, along with others, were solicited to write books. And with that becomes this pressure to platform, this pressure to game the system so you can become a best-selling author and basically doing everything that is a satirist, I abhorred everything we made fun of evangelicals for doing. They were now looking at progressive people to do. And you could find plenty of people that were willing to do the whole, what I call cold play and candles and put up their tattoo theology and be real cool and hip and but watching what happened to them when they got under the glare of the media spotlight really sickened my stomach. And the more I got invested in this, I realized this is not for me. So by the time I wrote my last book, Jesus Died for This, I was starting to exit the door, literally. And the door had also, it's not going to be relaunched, thank goodness, in 2021. But the door had closed in 2006, right when my first book came out. So I no longer had the satirical outlet that I once had that was giving me that hope. And also Christian publishing was moving more to the right. You had to be more conformist. And even your most liberal uber pastor, like you look at someone like uh, Rob Bell or Nadia Bolz-Weber, no matter how uber cool and hip they may come across, they're still connected to the Christian industrial complex and willing to toe the line to get their bestseller book status. And so this was just not a tenable place for me. And I began to realize that, you know, people that I cared about churches on the fringe were not being supported. The institutional church was continuously going for the next big shiny thing. So I just kind of exited and that kind of, that corresponded with my decision to move to the Pacific Northwest. Because as you know very well here, there's this Celtic form of spirituality, this very nature-based, it's very, much connected to the ground, connected to the earth. And there's this growing move of people leaving institutional Christianity 
but only 16% of them call themselves atheists. Everyone else is something else, so to speak. So if I call myself anything, now it's an apophatic, um, agnostic Anglican. Apophatic, <laughs> I'm certain, you know. Okay, Can I, I, I'm gonna keep track of that. What's a long title? <laughs> well, the, the, the apophatic is I'm searching for the mystery, which I know I will never find. Agnostic means I don't know. And I think that's a very good place for me to be. I just don't know. There's a lot of things beyond me that I do not know the answer for. And I will continue seeking for them an Anglican is, my late father was an Episcopal priest. I grew up as his altar girl at times. I grew up in that kind of a community and it's always gonna be ingrained in me in the same way that someone who grew up in another faith tradition, that's part of their ethnic heritage. You know, right. I, didn't leave the Epis I didn't leave the Episcopal church. The Episcopal church left me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I just so relate to so many things you're saying. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, it's it's hard to put my head around it, but you know um, I, I consider myself a done done with church, and uh, you know I walked mm -hmm. out the door, and but you know I always have this kind of like this um, I don't know if it's kind of a romantic uh, feeling of what it was like when the, the good part of church, the, the community and the friendships, and 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 part of a uh, a movement be you know bigger than yourself, and and uh, what I found is. Um, uh, going into what I discovered is this organization called Rotary. I don't know if you know Rotary International, but mm -hmm. it's it's a really cool uh, organization that uh, basically the motto is service above self, and uh, you know just uh, serve serve other people, community service, global service. I'm in the uh, world community uh, uh, service, uh, international service arm of it, and we've got projects in Africa that I'm involved in, and it kind of it gets me back into my quote evangelical missionary work uh but um it's just just serving other people without the religion and politics <laughs> so it's very refreshing and it's just you just kind of step out and you just really just you know focus on people and f making the world a better place and loving others and, and your neighbor and 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 i think you know, I think in the bottom line, a lot of people are searching for something like that. And whether you find it in an organized church, uh, which in my mind is very problematic, but it's possible, um, but, or you find it somewhere else in a secular organization like Rotary or wh where you're going with uh, maybe what you call secular spirituality. Um, you know, it, it all, they, they all can actually overlap and 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 what what really matters most and what people are pursuing, um, and so you talk about secular spirituality. What what are some examples of that that you've discovered that you're pursuing? Well, I want to say briefly that for me, secular spirituality for me is code for saying anything not connected to the institutional church. And here I'm finding people that are willing to that meet people where they are and provide spaces for all to just be. And one example of that in a church context would be the Reverend Karen Ward, who founded CODA up in Seattle, which also is part, and the whole Fremont Arby, Abbey Arts organization that's very vibrant and very big and draws in a number of people in Seattle. And post-COVID, look for her to do likewise here in Portland. That's a very interesting example. She's guided in, the, in this effort. She has a lot of people, such as there's a really interesting new guy called Aaron Kelly. There's Todd and Angie Fadel who are 
very close friends with Kathy Escobar, who I know you've oh, interviewed. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. We've interviewed you, her. Yeah. You, you know, Deborah and Ken Lloyd are involved in this. It's just a very interesting experiment. Another example would be when I was studying with my, like, my improv teacher, the late Gary Austin, who I started seeing him in 96 when I was living in New York City. And I reconnected with him in 2014 because he also teaches in Seattle. And that was a group where we were beginning to explore how to do not just an acting class, but when I reconnected with him, he had a form of cancer that could not be cured. It could be treated, but not cured. And the ways in which we became a loving, supportive community, because during the past few years of his life, he was very determined to have us focus on what really matters. What's the most important thing? Cut away the BS. Just stay on your breath and get real. And that really helped hone a lot of my work, a lot of my writing. I would not be where I am as far as being as free and open with my work with, had it not been for him. We also find here a lot of affinity groups here, you know, exploring the whole Pacific Northwest craft culture, you know, beer, wine, cider, spirits. And here in Oregon, now cannabis and psilocybic mushrooms. And these aren't just, you know, sometimes there are ways for us to enjoy it, but for many people here, a brew pub becomes their church. You know, ah. a, lo a local, a local, a local. Speaking my language here. Okay, keep going. <laughs> you know, a local, a local cannabis sesh is a community. There's a lot of ways in which people are finding, just like you go to church, because, you know, Aunt Dear Abby would say at one point, this is where you go if you're single. Well, now people go to a brew pub, they go to a cannabis gathering. And I'm seeing also some explorations of sacred sexuality. I meet a lot number of ex-evangelicals who participate now in the ecstatic dance community. And there's also a group here called Dance Naked Productions, which works to provide sex positive theater. And Eleanor O'Brien, the founder, through her Patreon group, is now forming on online communities and ways for people to intimately get together in a more private setting. And it's open only to her patrons through her Patreon account. And then there's another group I'm thinking it's called the Empowered Pleasure who pre-COVID was offering in-person abilities to try to connect through tantric sexuality. Now tantra means literally weaving together energies. And I've, had, I've seen experiences where people of diverse backgrounds, diverse political beliefs, you know, class backgrounds, racial ethnicities, a number of different variables through this experience can come together and experience what is it like to have us be what do we have in common at the core of our sacred shared humanity and right now their events are pretty much online but i'm foreseeing that returning to another scene you know and here in portland if you look at for example take when the we had two murders on the max which are horrible all the memorials were put up somebody thought to put up memorials now they were not a church but people had a need to express memorial, had a need to touch. There's a need I'm seeing in my buy nothing groups of making sure that everybody in my neighborhood has enough food, has the basic clothing. Someone gives birth to a baby and doesn't have what they need. Others try to provide. So there's a sense in which, especially after this election, I was noticing some very positive work happening at the grassroots level through some ballot initiatives at the corporate 
interests don't get a hold of them, sometimes some really significant change can happen at the local level in these regards. So there is a desire to do good, a desire to live you know, in a better society. I'm seeing it happening at the grassroots level, not at the institutional level. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, I definitely see that all around. I mean, that was one of the things that I discovered when I came out of the evangelical church. Hey, you know, you know, evangelicals kind of talk like, oh, we're the only real, you know, community that really does love each other and do good. And then you realize, no, that's not true. And in fact, you know, because of some of the problematic nature of the institutional church, a lot of them devolve into spiritual abusive communities. So, uh, but these other outside the church, uh, you know, models, uh, it, they're all over the place. And and you've just identified several of them. Um, you know, I since I left the church, uh, for one example is, uh, you know, I, when someone I know, uh, a few years ago, uh, someone that I know passed away and they were outside the church and, and, but they read one of my books. And so the, the family called me up and said, Hey, you know, we don't go to church or anything. Can, can you lead the memorial? And so, and so it's like, you know, we all have this need for community. And I was like, you don't really need the church to do these things. You can um, form a community anywhere, even in a pub. Um, I mean, I, I, I obviously talk about the craft beer culture here named the podcast the spiritual brew pub but um uh that i discovered that years ago uh the craft beer uh movement in the pacific northwest is just absolutely amazing and of course it's it's all over the country now but it kind of started here as i understand it and you know like you said they hang out in breweries and there's there's this kind of affinity if you're a craft brewer brewer you're not really trying to you know compete with the other guy and drive him out of town you're just you everyone is welcome and they do a lot of charities too they do a lot of things to help the community so those are great examples um uh and the um uh really focusing on what really matters i think that you really hit on something and that's that's really uh, my experience with the rotary uh organization is just like that what really matters and, and just as a caveat i don't want to pre- present this as a utopia like this like church bad secular good because there are because one of the things that i've noticed is there's a couple of sex in, in the sex positive community i'm aware of some leaders that do not do a very good job as far as teaching boundaries and consent now i think on one hand the humanist sex positive communities are in a better position than the religious ones to handle topics of human sexuality because they're not burdened by the religious gar- garbage. So they can therefore right, teach right. about and teach about boundaries and consent and teach about how to have loving, openly respectful, mutual beneficial relationships of all kinds, whether you want to be monogamous, polyamorous, open, swinging, whatever your relationship style is that there is a place for you. However, I have seen instances where lack of leadership, lack of accountability can present problems in any situation. So you can find abusive secular gurus. Here in Portland, we had the Zen Center of Portland ended up closing shop because the long-term Buddhist teacher was abusing inappropriate with other female students and the board, which by the way was led by a mindfulness therapist of all people, seemed to be oblivious to this abuse. So abuse can happen in any context 
where you have power consolidated and it is not shared in an ethically responsible way with adequate oversight. So I just need to put that in there that, you know. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, that's why I bring up what matters most and what matters most is, you know, being ethical, being responsible and loving uh, your neighbor and, and not uh, being abusive and taking advantage of people. So it's, yeah. And, and I often say that for me, even though I left church, you know, the way I look at the new Testament now, church is just optional. It's just, it's just a modern institution that we came up with. It's, it could be good or it could be bad. It's just, you know, you, you, you a church is uh, what it is. And if you, if you don't go to church, it doesn't m mean a hill of beans uh, compared to someone who does go to church. What matters is how you live your life. So um, the key, and you can find communities outside of church. So uh, I understand what you're saying. Boundaries is really important. Ethics, um, responsibility. Uh, this is not, yeah, w w you know, the Rotary International the, uh, International Organization is an amazing organization, but no organization is has the perfect model for something. Mm -hmm. uh, so um, and it's kind of like what Roger Williams said, no one religion is, is the answer. I mean, no one, mm -hmm. you know, model is the answer. We, we're all we're all trying to find ones that fit our lifestyle and our interests mm -hmm. uh, while focusing on what matters most. Um, I wanted to pivot a little bit and talk about your <clears throat> newest book, um, uh -huh. Roger Williams' Little Book of Virtues. Mm -hmm. And uh uh, it piqued my interest. Uh, I went to Roger Williams College uh, when I was uh, in my in another life, and um, I, I rediscovered him in my my research. And uh, he's quite a remarkable uh, person in our history. And unfortunately, he is so um, uh, I don't know neglected. I guess you know we don't really you know talk about not not, not many. You pick up an American history book and. It doesn't normally mention Roger Williams, if, and if it does, it's in passing. So, but it's quite a remarkable uh, story about him. So, mm -hmm. wh why did you write this book, and and wh what is the thrust of its message? Well, I wrote about the book because one of my major issues, as you know from reading Red, Blue God, Black, and Blue Church, is the separation of church and state. And as you point out, he was a forgotten figure. He was 150 years ahead of our founder. And given Parliament burned his books, he was pretty much banished from Massachusetts to Rogues Island. He was, he's not someone that I even studied in divinity school. So I began to re rediscover him when I started connecting with atheists and discovering how many of them were quoting the works of this, you know, Baptist freethinker, so to speak. And I noticed as the Republican Party and the Tea Party and the religious right became more and more radicalized in 2013, I wanted to write a book to, to counterbalance that and say, how do we get back to this basic principle of separation of church and state, but to do so in a manner that my ancestor was loved even by his enemies, even John Cotton, who couldn't stand him, would say he might have, you know, a windmill in his head, but he's got a good heart. You know, mm -hmm, he, mm -hmm. people acknowledge there was, what about him enabled him not to get killed? I mean, John Winthrop told him, you're about to get executed. You need to leave Massachusetts. Now he could have just killed him. He had no problem. He killed Mary Dyer. A lot of people were killed on Boston Commons. People don't realize that's where you went really? to get hung. <laughs> I mean, that's basically, you know, disagree with what they didn't like because you disagree with the politicized form of the church on the hill message. So instead of 
what Roger Williams wanted was liberty of conscience. So this debate we're seeing between church and state has been going on ever since the Williams-Winthrop debates. But yet Roger Williams was warned instead of killed. So I was interested to know what did he do in his life that enabled him not to get killed? Because people who espoused less radical views than him were being sent to the gallows in both in you know, England and in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Yeah. And, in, and in 2013, there was no interest in this topic, so I couldn't find a publisher, so I self-published it. But then fast forward to 2018, and the interest was there again, and I found a publisher in Whippenstock. Yeah, right. right. I, I've done, I published my book, one of my books through them. Yeah, but they're they're not they're not a mainstream publisher, but still, they that this would be a perfect book for them. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, um, you're you're actually related to Roger Williams. How did you find that out? Oh, I, I knew I knew that as a little kid growing up. I mean, oh, it was you just did. Like, okay. Yeah, because um, we would go vacation at Prudence Island, Rhode Island, which is an island my ancestor founded, and there's actually a a plaque there that the Boy Scouts put up in the 1950s, noting a point where he's preached to the Narragansett Indians. That's the term the Boy Scouts used in the 1950s, or whenever they put the plaque up, it's been up there for quite some time. My entire lifetime has been there. So I just knew I was related to Roger Williams. I also knew I was related to four pilgrims. I mean, I just knew this stuff, but I didn't really connect it historically to much of anything, you know, growing up. It's just like, man, eh, whatever. <laughs> Yeah, right. Well, when you're a kid, that's the way it is. And yeah, when I went to college there at Roger Williams College, we didn't care about stuff like that. <laughs> I mean, I was I was I, did, I was kind of a late bloomer when uh, really getting a, a hooked on history. But um, so uh, you know the the history of uh, this is the sixteen the uh, early sixteen hundreds, mid sixteen hundreds. Uh, mm -hmm. Roger Williams uh, comes to. Uh, Massachusetts uh, from England, uh, joining the Puritan colony, Massachusetts Bay Colony. What what made him stand out from that colony? You know, what did he do to uh, to 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 get uh, threatened to be killed and, and banished? Well, well, first off, if you have to realize when he first arrived, he was heralded as a godly minister, and really? he, he and he landed the pre a primo slot. I mean, he had which you would call in you know, Yale Divinity School, we would say, you know, a primo parish. I mean, he was set up to become like a grand, basically, you know, another cotton type figure. And this was, but he then began preaching that everyone has the right to worship as they please. And he also began insisting that the natives get compensated for their land. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that did not go over too well. So he was, <laughs> I said, get the heck out of here. So he, he then went to Plymouth Colony and Salem oh, for two other okay. places. Okay, so he, start, he started in Boston and then he went to Plymouth. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. he went to, to Salem and Plymouth are the two places he went. I see. But, but, but the Massachusetts Bay Colony was like, uh-uh. They, they were very strong. They said, no, you got to leave. So in the dead of winter, he was asked to leave. He basically was given the option, you know, go to Rose Island or get killed. So he was then asked to leave. Now, what, what's important to note here is England at this time had not had a colony that worked. You know, Jamestown, Roanoke, this was their third attempt at a colony. There was considerable pressure on John Winthrop to make this work. Ah, you I know, see. Yeah. You know, you know the, the, the Dutch owned New York, the French had Quebec, there was you know, the Spaniard, Spain down in Florida, 
but England had not had established a stronghold. This oh, was their okay. last. This was their last shot. And if John Winthrop blew it, I mean, so I'm just I'm not justifying anything he did. So he made a determination. I think in his heart he wanted a, the Massachusetts Bay Colony to be a city on a hill, a beacon of light. Right. But in right. order to do this, you had to have everyone had to follow the certain type of control. So comparison to Plymouth Bay Colony, where if you were a pilgrim and you didn't want to be a pilgrim, you were just asked to leave the colony. So it's sort of like the Amish. You have to do what we say in our colony or you get a leave. If you did not obey what the Puritans said, you were killed. Uh, so okay, that, there you go. Okay, well, either banishment or de death. Yeah, right. Well, 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 I mean, so, so, so Roger lucked out. He got banishment and he went right. and, and when he, after he left, because he of who he was, he took time to learn the native languages. He took time to get to know the, and he was befriended. And this, and these are the friendships that formed his ability to not only form the colony of Rhode Island, but also during ensuing wars towards the latter part of his life, he actually intervened and prevented Massachusetts and Connecticut from being totally destroyed even though they still continued to banish him. In fact, Roger Williams was banished from Massachusetts until the 1930s when they voted a bill in that finally unbanished him. Wow, that's amazing. So when he went to Rhode Island, there was no colony there at all? He started it himself or was there already a group of settlers there? It was called Rogue Island. So I don't know, it basically was not a place that you would want to go. And I'm, and I'm, I, I th thought several times of what my, grandmother his you know his wife would have thought about being put in you know being put there you know by himself all and then she's she's stuck there with the kids because yeah. they did not follow her until afterward and he was also gone a fair amount trying to secure a charter he something tells me he was not the world's most attentive husband but they did have right. a very long marriage that seemed to last but i can imagine the stressors that was put on her at times right so she, she he went there first and she and she came later after he established yes things. yeah i see so what were the um what were the ideas that he had that you know he's called kind of the origin of the separation and church uh, separation of church and state um you know idea what what what, what, were, what were the things that that he believed and taught that uh, made him like eventually become, you know, known as a champion of free speech and the separation of church and state. Well, he, he was the first government charter in the Western world, you know, counting Europe and the colonies that would acknowledge the right of religious liberty. And unlike how it's determined today in contemporary sites of religious freedom and how it's being twisted, what he meant was the right of all to worship as they please. And this, this also right. included heretics, included people that don't but choose to believe nothing. Mm -hmm. The first sure. synagogue in the colonies was established in Newport, Rhode Island. Is that right? Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. And it's also important to note that here he's only focusing on religious liberty. He does not address social issues like slavery. He does not address women's rights. And in fact, in my book, I list a case called the Barron case, where Mr. Barron decided that his wife could not attend Roger's Williams's little worship service. And that was not required to be a citizen of Rhode Island, but some people wanted to go. So Roger, they got together and for, they basically cited him, but they didn't cite him for spousal abuse. I mean, he was beating the living daylights out of her. And he eventually just departed and took her and left. 
so the state. So what the issue at hand was her right to worship as she pleased, but he did not address his right to beat her as he pleased. Yeah, right, right. So, yeah, I mean, you know, I think when, when you study history, you realize that, you know, we kind of look look through history sometimes with our modern eyes and we've already come so far and we look back and go, how could they do that? And it's true, that's a good question. How could they do that? But uh, I can see how in this case, he was focused on religious liberty, but he wouldn't have been, uh, he might have uh, been blind to, you know, sexism and, uh, you know, abusive women and social justice. And I don't know what he thought about slavery, but, you know, I, I, can, I can see in that time, uh, you know, it, no, very few people could, you could, you could make some, uh, uh, take a stand on, on freedom and, and so, uh, justice for all and equality, uh, in some areas and still be blind to it in other areas. Yes. I mean, this is a person who was groundbreaking in his work with the natives and never, ever address the enslavement of people from Africa and, or the Caribbean. It just right yeah yeah that's a good example i mean <laughs> you wonder well how can we well you know maybe if he had you know if people lived for hundreds of years maybe he eventually would have you know he said but so that that does you know beg the question what exactly did he do differently than the other colonizers in his treatment of indigenous people well, the, the big one as i mentioned earlier was he argued that they should be compensated for their land adequately so he would negotiate fair treaties. It wasn't a case of, you know, Michael Stuyvesant, you know, giving, you know, garbage trinkets in exchange for Manhattan. There was actually a desire to make this be equitable and fair, which is why during the time later, there's the Prince Philip's War that happened. And later when Providence was burned, the native peoples there, the local tribes tipped off Roger Williams, leave now. So his life was spared, and I'm very grateful for that because I wouldn't be here otherwise. You know, but, yeah, right. <laughs> but, but, but that that's a that's a key thing to think about is that's what he did. They were burning everybody else. They said, "Hey, we're not going to burn you, okay? Just yeah. get out." <laughs> right. It seems like a lot of people uh, did that. I mean, even the the Puritans, you know, they liked him, uh, even though they disagreed with him. But the and the and the in the American. Uh, 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 Indians, they, they liked him because he, they treated him well. And so they, they, uh, I mean, that just kind of blew me away. So it's like, he actually went to Rhode Island and actually bought the land from native Americans. And, you know, that was kind of unheard of. And it's like, you know, why wouldn't, you know, you, the kind of what you wonder, why wouldn't people born into this Christian culture in Europe, why wouldn't they think that, the, the American Indians, American, uh, African American, excuse me, the uh, Native Americans, you know, should be treated equally as their, as their neighbor. And isn't that what their religion teaches? I always wondered about that. Well, well, it, it's not that hard to figure out when you look at the English, the history of colonization in England, for starters. I mean, the, what is it, what is it based on? It's based on usurping language, usurping a culture, usurping territory, and imposing your particular religion right. onto a culture. I mean, look at how we have, you know, tried to strip other other people of their cultures without even, as, as though we implied that the Puritan version of Christianity, which, by the, you know, by the way, meant that, you know, Anglicans and Catholics get killed. You know, we decided this is a one particular form of Christianity that's going to be permissible. 
that's been going on for quite some time. So these current developments and the rise of the religious right and wanting to infuse this into politics is nothing new. It's just a new form of doing it now. It's been going yeah, on for right. quite some time. Yeah, you know. it does. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the, you know, when you look at the, the Puritans themselves, they, they were being oppressed in England. So they wanted to get religious freedom and, and move and set up a city on the hill. And it's all, it's, it all seems so, you know, noble. And, and then you realize, no, wait a minute, they were oppressed and then they became the oppressor. <laughs> you know, it's like yeah. they just changed hats and said, okay, we got our freedom. Now we're not going to give it to other people. It's just amazing. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I can see that mentality that was prevalent there. Then, um, uh, so um, the um, uh, what was his what was his relationship like with uh, the Narragansett tribe, the other tribes? Um, you know, did he learn the language and and you know uh, do uh, uh, help them out, or, and and they helped each other? Or what was it like? There did appear to be um, under a, a form of mutuality in the beginning. Um, he did write the first book that translated the Narragansett language and he befriended the older tribes members. When the younger tribe came up towards his later life, those people, those local tribes had much less patience. They felt the older tribesman was being too docile and polite. And as more, more of their property became encroached, that's what led to the violent King Philip's War I in 1676. See. So, you know, Ro Roger was doing what he could to keep the peace. You know, there was an instance where John Oldman was killed. There were other instances of minor insurrections. He would be brought in to quell these and to be a, be a major peacemaker of, of sorts. But eventually over time, the best the younger kid, the younger tribes member said was, as I pointed out, Leave, leave Providence, we're gonna burn it. You know, it's, so towards the end of his life, all of the work that he did seemed not to really pay off in the sense that there was a lot of unrest and understandably so because he was other, Rhode Island's the smallest state in the nation. You have larger property was getting taken. People were getting killed. You know, land was being decimated. This is the beginning of, you know, treating the indigenous people like they were, not the, not not even human beings. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it seemed like he was he was just kind of a lone voice of re, of reason and, and equitable treatment of the of the of the natives. But he was the only one, or his group was the only one, and and so eventually the the more powerful voices uh, won out. And uh, mm -hmm. the uh, it, it's it's too bad his message didn't spread, but that that's just the way it was. Um, what were the, uh, you, you talk about the virtues of Roger Williams. What were the four mm -hmm. virtues that he, that you spell out? Well, ultimately, as I said, I, I settled on the four cardinal virtues, which were okay. justice, courage, prudence, and temperance. Right. Um, justice and courage should be pretty self-evident. What prudence means is, are you prudent? Do you know the right course to take? And Temperance is can you temper your passions so that you can actually get something done, or are you such a hothead that you know you blow up and explode? The latter two are the virtues that I've been I struggle with the most. That I think you know I've always been wanting to seek out justice similar to my ancestor. I you know as far as courage, I think that 
I don't know if I would have had the courage he had to face the mobs the way he did. I mean, I look at this, you know, his entire life, you know, all the risks that he had to take. I, I would hope and think that I could rise to the occasion, but you never know until you're tested to that extent. You know, right. and I and I do struggle with it with the temperance part because there are times when I've let my anger get the better of me, and I was oh crap! I just can't believe I said, you know, I get you get so angry that I'm now working on. That's been to me the biggest challenge as a satirist is to tamper the anger into the most effective way to apply, and then and then you get into prudence. What is the right course to take here? What is the right way to respond? We've hit us we've now currently hit a state of polarization where we definitely need temperance and prudence. Um, and the court, the corporate interests do seem to have forgotten about justice. And I would argue that a lot of our politicians lack courage. So, but there, there were, I, in the book, I wanted to explore, how did he use these virtues to, what did he have in his personality that let him not get killed, you know, and, and enabled him to still be somebody that we can talk about. Right, right. So, yeah, I mean, we certainly need that that prudence and temperance today. I mean, uh, the polarization has just gotten outrageous. And um, I, there's been uh, this guy named William Bennett wrote this other book about the, uh, the virtue. I forgot what it was named. Uh, the, the, you know, the book I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah. The virtues book. And it was just like, oh my gosh, it's just, it was so legalistic and, and, and it, and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't coming from a context of like a Roger Williams philosophy of, 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 uh, freedom and, and, and freedom of religion, et cetera. So I really liked the way that's book kind of focused on virtues from that context. And I think you did a really great job of drawing those out. Um, uh, you know, I, I've been struggling, you know, we've got so in our society today, you know, I, I reacted to the religious right and you did too. And, and you, and, you know, we, we kind of call out the, the abusive and harmful elements of that movement and how it became politicized, et cetera. And now we've got, you know, a good chunk, if not most of the religious right, at least, Maybe it's changing from because of the last two weeks, but a lot of the religious right bought into Donald Trump and and even though from what I could see he had no virtues uh, except just his own you know stroking his ego and making himself look good. But and you know how did this happen and and where should we go and where what what is the hope that we have for the future of of of, of avoiding you know the polarization and the and the on both the religious right. And they're uh, being becoming much more narrow and legalistic, and and then again, uh, maybe the religious left who who have their own political agenda too. So you know, wh 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 is there any middle ground that we can find, or or and what can Roger Williams do to help us sort this out? Well, I think we have to look at. I view what was going on with the Trump administration as a as a symptom, not the problem. We need That's to look right. at the absolutely. At the, we are a country with massive inequalities. And as I kind of said, you know, you put, you tell people you, you need to be locked up because this virus is going to get you. You lock people up, you reduce their economic e inequalities, which were already going down. You were, they were, you tell people you've lost your job, you can't provide for your rent, your basic necessities. And then you wonder why they act like a rat trying to chew their leg and get out of the cage. 
So I think we do need to look at what has happened to where we have massive inequalities, because you don't have this in a place like, let's say, Sweden, where people have a better, you know, better health care, there's more economic equality, there's a better lifestyle. What in, and I'm not trying to play Pollyanna, I'm aware of a country of this complex, it's not going to be an easy solution. And I'm the religious satirist, I'm not an economist. But in terms of from the religious standpoint, I would say people should look at the reporting of Jeff Charlotte with the family, Catherine Stewart's research on Christian nationalism, and Ann Nelson's work on Council for National Policy. There's been a very concerted effort, which Jeff Charlotte points back to the early turn of the century towards crafting a Christian nation with the goal of yes. advancing Christian right. capitalism. And in fact, if you look at this, the religious right was going for Cruz. They decided to go for Trump under three conditions. He appoint Pence. Yeah. He helps, he, he gives them the ability to pick judges, especially the Supreme Court of the United States appointments. And mm -hmm. it's obvious he was drawing from the Federalists and certain yep, groups to get those yep. people. Mm -hmm. And third, work to overturn the Johnson Amendment, which was an amendment set up by Lyndon B. Johnson that prohibits churches, which already get a lot of exempt status from engaging in partisan politics. Now, the IRS, uh, well, now the IRS has not gone after anybody for violations of this for quite some time now. And the effort by the Grassley Amendment in 2007 to require fiscal responsibility among churches and calling places like Daystar or TBN actual churches instead of TV networks was defeated due to lobbying by the religious right and institutions. So we right now have a rigged system that is in favor of this. And frankly, forming evangelicals for Biden and hipster pastors hanging with Harris and bragging about, oh, look, I got on the phone call with this and whatnot. That's not the answer. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The, you know, that's not the way to go. We've, when I, I just saw a group called the New Moral Majority and my first response is, didn't <laughs> yeah. you remember, didn't you remember how the last one turned out? Yeah, I mean, really. The moment, <laughs> but the, the moment you get so inflated with power, I mean, even Al Franken admitted this. He said, I couldn't do certain Clinton jokes because I was too close to the Clintons. And yeah. this is a huge problem. Like you, we have the Babylon Bee, for example, is not a bipartisan religious satire site. They were on Parler when Parler was around, and they definitely have a right-wing leaning to them. And the, the speaker has gone on president. You cannot do that. If you're going to be a satirist, and I've had people tell me what I can do with myself on all sides of the spectrum, you have to be willing to go after anyone who is abusing religion to achieve their own political ends and their own power, where it becomes, you know, and basically, as always, I say one of the easiest answers, follow the money, see where the money's going. That will tell you what somebody truly worships. And we have to look at what people are truly worshiping. And for right now, I don't know if you've been familiar with the works of Margaret Wheatley, but I was tuned into her work by Deborah Lloyd, and she describes how all signs are pointing, it's worth the end of a civilization and the starting of a new one. And the end of a civilization is called the decadence end, where all of a sudden you become obsessed with celebrity, minutia, our obsession on social media, getting your likes, getting your this. We're obsessed with everything except for what's really important. And then you find 
another civilization forming of the pioneers. And that's where I'm seeing some grassroots efforts starting. You know, here in Oregon, we've been leading the country for allowing people to make their own determination for death with dignity, with the passage of decriminalization of cannabis. We're one of the first states to do this. And we're now the first state to work on legalizing psilocybin mushrooms for medicinal therapeutic use. So these are, what can we do at the local level, the grassroots? And that's where I see transformative change that can happen as far as an answer, because when we're at the end of a civilization cycle, I, it, it's going to go down eventually and it'd be replaced with something new. And you can see all the signs of that happening. Yeah, and that's what I'm afraid of. It's like, okay, you know, this is a real backlash for the, for the, religious right and and you know conservative the republican i mean there's so many republicans who have left the party and and for me it's actually opened my eyes oh a lot of these republicans that are left are really cool people and and you know I, i've never considered myself either party but lately i've always leaned democrat because of what's going on but but you don't want that democratic uh movement or that liberal movement to be to become just like uh, the, the religious right and what they're doing. And you, there's got to be a way to uh, uh, go back to the time, at least uh, there was a time when, you know, both parties would uh, disagree on the floor and then go out and have a beer afterward, you know. And uh, somehow, uh, it, when you can point to examples of people doing things like that, that restoring and, 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 um, bringing people together, I think those are good examples. Have you, have you ever heard of Daryl Davis? I like to no, always I bring him up. Uh, Daryl Davis uh, is a remarkable man, a black uh, guy who um, started to real, the short story is that he began to reach out to Ku Klux Klansmen and he began to ask them, why do you hate me when you don't even know me? And he would actually befriend them and um, but he would always challenge them too. He wasn't like just, you know, being a doormat to him, but, and eventually he actually won over like 24 Klansmen to leave the Klan and realize that they were on the wrong path. <laughs> I was like, and he did it not from, you know, by, you know, yelling and screaming about, you know, racism. He did it by uh, just reaching out and getting to know them and at the same time, challenging their their paradigm, uh, but in a way where they could still say, hey, you know, I may disagree with this guy, but I really like him. Just like, you know, people said, I disagree with Roger Williams, but I really like him, you know? Mm -hmm. So the, the, the relationships and, and empathy for people, et cetera. And you can see little examples of that uh, from time to time, but there's no real uh, movement, I think, that's that's really uh, doing that very strongly. And I think that's something we, we, sh we can pursue. Mm -hmm. So, um, well, this has been a great conversation, Becky. Um, we're mm -hmm. running out of time. I so, I'm so glad that I was able to connect with you. And mm -hmm. I think we've had a great history lesson. I wanna encourage people to read uh, this book, Roger Williams' um, Book of Little Virtues. And uh, do you have a website um, or what's the best way to get the book and learn more about your work? If you, if you go to um, beckygarrison.com, all the links to where you can purchase the book are there. There's also a place if you want to just send me a question, if you have anything you wish to chat about. You can also follow me. I have a Facebook page of Becky Garrison and also at Twitter and Instagram. 
Okay. At Becky, at, at Becky underscore Garrison. Right. All right, folks. Uh, you know, you got in the word BeckyGarrison.com. Uh, find her on Facebook and Twitter. Um, great. She's a great investigative journalist and writer and uh, has a lot of insights that to bring us. So thanks again, Becky, for joining us. And I uh, hope, I hope we can connect uh, when I'm down in Portland or, or when you're up in Seattle. Okay, I'm hope I'm look forward to the day when that's going to be a reality. Yes, we do. <laughs> and you know what? With craft breweries, you can meet outside, and they have these tables with this little fire in the middle, and you can have a beer and be socially distanced and <laughs> enjoy the, the the place. Um, you, you, you can if you have the right setup. A place like Pike's Pub, which one of my favorite beer, my favorite brew pub in Seattle. Yes. Last I heard, they, they close indefinitely. They don't have a facility. A lot They're of places, not set up for it. Yeah, yeah. A lot of places are not set up for it. Yeah, but you, you're right. You can't, you can't have a beer outside if it's possible. A lot of times I've been ordering from places like Tabor and, you know, places like Reverend Nass will do delivery. We have a place yeah. for Stormbreaker. Oh, yeah. The, yeah. My, my, my favorite brew pub to come visit, Ecliptic, has some good takeout. But a lot of places right now are reducing just the takeout because they just can't open up it's just not economically it is feasible. it is sad yeah yeah well we have several around here that have outdoor dining and have, have improvised with tables with heaters and yes and so forth so it's 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 unfortunate there's only a few of them that can do that so mm -hmm. thanks again uh, we're going to sign off um folks uh, it's great that you could join us and we'll see you next time on the spiritual brew pub and enjoy responsibly The Spiritual Brew Pub Podcast will help you navigate spiritually after or during a belief shift, deconstruction, or crisis of faith. Not to try to convert you to a particular destination, but give you the resources you need to evaluate your future belief or unbelief and help you follow the religious historical evidence wherever it leads. I'm your host, Michael Camp a recovering conservative evangelical, the operative word being recovering, sharing my journey and helping others rebuild faith or a reasoned philosophy of life. So grab your brew of choice and learn how fact-based history helps us both critique and rethink faith. Why do we call it a brew pub? Because we like to hang out in them, at least metaphorically. A pub is a great place to let your hair down Share your true thoughts about your journey and discuss things with an open mind in a non-judgmental environment.